Well, beloved in the Lord, let us now open our copies of God's Word to the 8th century B.C. prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, the ninth chapter, and we will look at the sixth verse. Every few years I preach this passage. Every time I study it, I learn something new. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, but we will read beginning at verse 1 through verse 7. Let us now with humility and reverence bow before the Lord our God. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for the Word of God, inerrant in the whole and in the part, given by divine inspiration through the blessed Holy Spirit. We now can turn to this Word and learn of Christ the Redeemer. But only, Heavenly Father, as we as receptors of thy word are regenerated, can we truly understand and grasp what is found in this passage or any passage. And so we would thank thee, Heavenly Father, for giving to us lives now as believers in Christ that love the word of God and that desire to submit our hearts to it. And as one of the old theologians said, Father, help us to be in love with holiness of life to be in love with sanctification, that we ourselves might become more Christ-like in all that we think and do. But Heavenly Father, we also realize that on this day, or perhaps any given Sunday, there may be those who are here who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that the Prince of Peace will find them in sovereign grace this morning, and that they will come to know the Savior, the Lord Jesus and be willing subjects of his kingdom. And these things we pray in the name of Christ our Lord and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word. Stand. We begin reading at verse 1, Isaiah, the ninth chapter. This is the Word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire." For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end." on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, separation between men is always the result when the gospel of Jesus Christ is faithfully preached. Some see Christ as the chief treasure, the end of all God's purposes for our lives and for this world. We count all things as dross to know Him and love Him and follow Him and serve Him, while others see no beauty in Him that they should desire Him, and they reject Him. Ultimately, only the Holy Spirit can remove scales from blind eyes, indeed give life to the spiritually dead so that we may see Christ for who He is. But the church is called through it all. In times in which many come to faith in Christ and times in which few, the church must proclaim Christ in his uniqueness as the Son of God. Jesus presented himself as God incarnate. And long before the Son came to save his people, the prophet Isaiah spoke as the Holy Spirit gave in Isaiah 9-6 the titles of the Messiah that proclaim him to be the unique Son of God. In dark times, Isaiah looks back and then he looks forward. In verse 4, he recalls how God obtained victory for Gideon, for which Gideon could take no credit at all. And then he looks forward to the greater victory to come through Jesus Christ, for which we can take no credit at all. Brightness is coming. Even the Gentiles will participate in this joy. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The theme that is taken up in Luke 1.79 and right here in this book of Isaiah 42 and again cited in Matthew chapter 4 verses 15 and 16 associates the coming of the Redeemer with light. Gloom, darkness is not the ultimate reality. And if you are tempted to be overwhelmed by the darkness of our world, you need to hear very clearly the message of the passage that gloom is not the ultimate reality. That Christ will come, the light will come through the Redeemer who would be born of the Virgin Mary. So who is this? Well, he is a child born and a son given. A child born. We should move from this chapter back to chapter 7, verse 14. And from that passage, we know that his human birth would be birth from a virgin. In Luke 1.35, we read, Therefore, that holy thing which shall be born to you shall be called the Son of God. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. All of which means that he must share in our humanity, though without sin. He is a child born. He is truly human. But also he is a son given given by the Father for our salvation. The child born was God's own Son, the second person of the Trinity, the everlasting Son of the Father. God Himself is given for us that we might be redeemed. 
and using language based on 2 Samuel 7, the child born, the son given, will rule. The government shall be upon his shoulder. That child must indeed be wonderful. If he indeed is a child sharing in our humanity, but simultaneously God the Son, truly God, deity, entering into this world that he might save and that he might rule, that child must indeed, and indeed he is, is he not, believer, wonderful. And yes, now let us focus on the five titles. There is the name, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name, which speaks of his being, who he is, shall be called. That is, his titles describe who he is that is given that he might save his elect. And so we find these five titles given to us in this passage, the first of which is wonder. Look at verse 6. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The first is wonder, pale. Usually this is a word that is used in the Hebrew Old Testament to express deity or what only God can do. And immediately we think of Judges chapter 13, where the parents of Samson are faced with the angel of Jehovah, probably a pre-incarnate Christophany. And the angel of the Lord asks, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful, this very word that is used here. And after the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar, Manoah and his wife fell down on their faces to the ground. The conservative, wonderful Old Testament scholar E.W. Hinstingberg says about Judges 13, that is my whole nature. Why do you ask who I am? That is my whole nature is miraculous, full of mystery, and therefore cannot be designated by any human name. And wonder is the standard expression for miracle as it is associated with God. And so we begin with the title of awe. And every Christmas I attempt to do the impossible. I can never get at it. I can never reach it. I can never attain it because it is too far beyond me, because I'm finite, and because the themes are infinite, because God himself is infinite. But every year what I want us to see, insofar as God will enable this preacher to do it, is to help you to see that this this incarnation of our Lord, the coming of the Son of God into this world to be our Redeemer, should fill us with a sense of awe, with a sense of reverence, with a sense of the, the miracle of it all, the mystery of it all, the wonder of it all. And I ask, do you sense this when you think of the child born in Bethlehem of Judea? Do you think of it when you consider what he did in this world to redeem us from our sins and went to a cross to shed his blood, the God-man purchasing his people from our sins? Are you filled with awe and wonder? Do you think of this when you contemplate his return? For that also is encompassed 
in this passage. His first name is Wonder or Wonderful. The standard approach now is to see Wonder and Counselor as inseparable so that it's read without a comma, as you have in your ESV, Wonderful Counselor, as one title. Now, I must tell you that every year I struggle with this and the language and wonder about it and think about it. I believe, however, that I've come to some several conclusions regarding exegetical questions regarding this text that have perplexed me over the years. I believe that what we have here are two distinct titles. They are two distinct nouns. And usually they are related because of parallels in Isaiah 28 and in 29, but those parallels are not strict parallels. So what we have here, I think, are two distinct titles, but of course, relatable titles. He is Wonder, and he also is Yoetz, Counselor. If Wonderful signifies what only God can do, then Counselor means that he is the divine counsel, and his counsel given to us is divine counsel. Counsel that only God can give. And that child born, that son given, is that counselor. His deity is once again stressed that he is fully God. No man could reveal to a sinner the way of life, how to be accepted with a holy God, though we are sinners, how to be sanctified, how to be glorified. Only God could give that counsel. And he has done so through the incarnation of our Lord. We think of David's court that had Ahithophel, and Solomon's wisdom was a supernatural wisdom, but the son's wisdom is the source. The son's wisdom is divine wisdom. This is the wisdom of which we read in Isaiah 40, who measured, who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel picked up by Paul the Apostle in Romans 11.34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Referenced again by Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.16. And so in his office as Redeemer, the Son has always been privy to the eternal Trinitarian counsel. In Isaiah chapter 11, just turn over a couple of pages, And you notice this messianic prophecy in Isaiah 11, the first two verses, that speaks of the wisdom of the Messiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord." And so we read of the coming Messiah. You know, the world was ruined by evil counsel, and it continues so to be. But this one whose name is Wonder, whose name is Counselor, is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He has given to us His written Word and His Holy Spirit to illumine our understanding and the promise of wisdom to every believer in answer to our prayers. Do any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. And so the use of our understanding of this title, Counselor, is very broad indeed. 
the divine counselor's appointed means given to us in order that we might have that wisdom from above is his written word. And since we have that word, why do we turn to ungodly and worldly counsel? Why do we go to those cisterns that can hold no water? Why do we turn to those who do not understand who God is, who man is, what our need is, what sin is, what grace is? We go to them. Often, Christians will turn to ungodly counselors about the things to which they should be turning to the Lord and to His Word and to His people. Psalm 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Hearken to Christ's counsel, people of God, and live. And when we believers heed the counsel of Christ, our hearts are so captivated by that word from above that is so filled with divine wisdom, so overflowing with divine counsel, that we are no longer so much compelled to obey as we are impelled to obey. We desire to obey the one who loved us and gave himself for us when he gives us that divine counsel, because coming with the word comes also the spirit of God to change my heart so that I want to know him and love him and serve him and obey him. I'm impelled inwardly by the divine counsel that I receive. Do you not find that to be the case, people of God? Sanctification is about hearts that are conformed to the image of the Son of God. Well, he has and he is wisdom, but does he have power? Oh yes, for notice that the next title is Mighty God. He is El Gavor, Mighty God. How does Jehovah describe himself in the very next chapter? In chapter 10 of Isaiah, verses 20 and 21. Jehovah is speaking, and this is what he says. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on Jehovah, the Lord. See the uppercase L-O-R-D, that's Jehovah, will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. And so he references to himself the might that belongs to him as God. Who then is Jesus? He is Jehovah. He is the second person of the Trinity. And already in Isaiah, Emmanuel means God with us. Emmanuel means God become man. And unless God became man, we could not have a mediator to reconcile us to God. Unless he is God, he cannot save us. He must be man. He must be God. And this is the profound mystery that confronts us every Christmas. That Jesus is very God of very God. Never created, but the creator himself. And that he assumed human nature. And that means the folly of those who deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Well, so long as we're sincere, someone says. Does it really matter? Yes, it matters, because here's the difference between thin ice that cannot hold your weight and thick ice that can carry you over. He is God who assumed human nature. Only his divine nature could give to his finite sufferings infinite value to remove our infinitely hell-deserving sin. We do not have Jesus, it is important for us to remember. 
We do not have a Jesus that is waiting for people to save themselves or to let him somehow save them. We have a Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, who is the mighty God. The Lord Jesus, who is mighty to save. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We heard from Matthew's gospel this morning. This is who he is. He is the mighty God. We do not somehow hawk a Jesus who is unable to save or redeem. But we preach a Redeemer who came into this world and actually redeemed and shed his blood to purchase a people. He is the mighty God. Ah, but let's go on. Because he also, who is called mighty God, is the everlasting Father. Wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Aviad, everlasting Father. Now, Father here is not a failure to distinguish between the Father and the Son and the Trinity, but it may mean one of two things. There are those who think that it means the Son's loving character is like one of a father's to his children. There was an article written on the wonderful child by John Davis in 1912, old Princeton Old Testament professor in a very famous volume of articles. And in that article, he argues that very idea, that what we have here with Everlasting Father is that his character is that of a father to his children, one who enduringly acts as a father to his people, he says. Or it can mean, and this is what I think it means, the possessor of eternity. The possessor of eternity. So the father of glory means glorious. The father of goodness means good. The father of compassion means compassionate. So here, father of eternity means the possessor of eternity. Or to quote J.A. Alexander, the author and bestower of eternal life. The one who is so the possessor of eternity, who dwells in eternity, who can actually grant to lost sinners eternal life. And at Christmas, when we consider the relation of eternity to time, when we consider and unpack the divine equation, what can follow but awe? And so I will say several times this year, as I do every Christmas, contemplate it, that the infinite became finite. The eternal subject to time. The unchangeable became changeable. The divine became human. God became man without ceasing to be God, without ceasing to be infinite, eternal, immutable, and divine. People of God, this is beyond us. Two natures, one person. He is God. He is man. Two natures, one person, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably united, that he might redeem you from your sins. And because of this, his atonement is infinitely valuable. 
Because of this, his sacrifice is always efficacious. And because he is the God-man, his intercession is always prevailing. So if you sit here today and you are contemplating the greatness of your sin, and perhaps the Spirit of the Lord is working within your heart and within your life, and you say, oh, what have I done to a holy God? What a sinner I am. My sin is so great. Whoever could pardon my sin? The answer is here. He is the God-man. He is the possessor of eternity. He is God who became man so that when He made atonement for sin, you come to Him in faith, no matter how vile your sins have been, He will wash them away and pardon them and cast them into the depths of the sea. As far as the east is from the west so far, are these sins, these awful iniquities, removed from Him and from you. How fitting then, this final title in verse 6 is Zar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now we probably here have an allusion to Solomon in a way that says a greater than Solomon is coming who will bring greater peace than was true of Solomon's reign. The prince sits on David's throne. Notice in verse 6, the government shall be upon his shoulder. In verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so David's throne, from the Old Testament perspective, David's throne is coordinate with God's own throne. We read about that in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 23. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord. Did you hear it? Then Solomon sat on the throne of Jehovah as king in place of David his father. So David's throne is coordinate with God's throne, and upon that throne Jesus Christ sits. Now, there are three ways in which to contemplate what it means that he's the Prince of Peace. Let me give them to you. The first is to contemplate the peace that he made when he went to his cross. He's the Prince of Peace through his achievement when he shed his blood for us. No king's reign ever came like this. The virgin-born Savior, the God-man, established the kingdom of peace. His saving rule in the hearts of men by means of the sacrifice of himself upon the cross, what king ever ruled in such a way as this? But what do we read in that great chapter of atonement, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah? We read about his shed blood, and we read in verses 3 through 6, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. On that cross, the God-man shed his blood and peace with God. For all who believe in him was achieved and accomplished. And he so desired the salvation of his elect to be at peace with God that he came to remove the sin that separated God and man. Christ's blood provides the cover in the storm of God's wrath, the place of peace and safety from that justly deserved anger of Almighty God. In the blessing of Jacob in Genesis 49, the Messiah was called Shiloh, which means peacemaker. The peacemaker will come. In Ephesians 2.14, he, speaking of Christ, he himself is our peace. And that peace was achieved through his own shed blood. Have you come to God? Do you know peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you understand that you cannot have peace, objective or subjective, if you do not know God, if you are not reconciled to God, restored to God, and that is why Jesus came into this world? Have you trusted in Christ alone, who is the Prince of Peace? So we see him as the Prince of Peace through his accomplishment on the cross, but also He is the Prince of Peace in converting sinners for whom He died. His reign, I want you to understand, His reign is now victorious. We do not wait for some earthly golden age for His work to be victorious and His kingdom to triumph. In saving sinners, He rules now. In saving sinners, He reigns now. Yes, there will be progress in this because those for whom he died will come to trust him. The Bible, however, does not teach a Christianized world before the coming of Christ. It teaches the salvation of sinners from the world and their entry into the church, which is the manifestation of God's kingdom in this world before the return of Christ. When Jesus saves his people from their sins. He is showing himself to be the one who rules and reigns now. He is the prince of peace. Are you converted? Have you come to God through the prince of peace? There's an illustration given by James Montgomery Boyce that I love to think about at this time of the year. He got it from somebody else. But it's about a young man, I'm going to read it to you, who was a soldier in the Russian army. Because the young man's father was a friend of Tsar Nicholas I, the young man had been given a rather responsible post. He was a paymaster in one of the barracks for the Russian army, and it was his responsibility to see that the right amount of money was distributed each month to the soldiers. The young man meant well. But his character was not up to the responsibility. 
He took to gambling, and eventually he gambled away a great deal of the government's money as well as all of his own. In due course, the young man received notice that a representative of the czar was coming to check the accounts, and he knew that he was in trouble. That evening, he got out the books, and he totaled up the funds owed. Then he went to the safe and got out his own pitifully small amount of money. And he sat there, and he looked at the two, and he was overwhelmed at the astronomical debt versus his own small change. He was ruined. He knew he would be disgraced. At last, the young man determined to take his life. He pulled out his revolver, placed it on the table before him, and wrote a summation of his misdeeds. At the bottom of the ledger, where he had totaled up his illegal borrowings, he wrote, A great debt! Who can pay? He decided that at the stroke of midnight he would die. As the evening wore on, the young soldier grew drowsy and eventually fell asleep. That night, Tsar Nicholas I, as was sometimes his custom, was making the rounds of this particular barracks. Seeing a light, he stopped, looked in, and saw the young man asleep. He recognized him immediately, and looking over his shoulder, saw the ledger book and realized all that had taken place. He was about to awaken him and put him under arrest when his eye fastened on the young man's message, a great debt, who can pay? Suddenly, with a surge of magnanimity, he reached over, wrote one word at the bottom of the ledger, and slipped out. That one word, Nicholas. Now, people of God, I don't know if Nicholas did that. I'd like to know. I can't find the ultimate reference for this. Maybe some of you can. But I know what Jesus Christ did. I know that when I calculated my sins at one point in my life, I saw I had a great debt. Who could pay? Add it up. It's infinite because we sinned against an infinitely holy God. My debt deserved his infinite wrath. But then I came to understand the gospel, that that's why Jesus went to the cross and was my substitute there and shed his blood there. And through saving faith granted to me by the Spirit of God, I saw the answer to my dilemma. Have you seen it? That your debt, my debt, is infinite. Who can pay? Well, down at the bottom, written in red blood, the Prince of Peace. And so I point you to him this Christmas season, the only one who could pay the debt of the sinner was not Tsar Nicholas, but our sin debt could only be paid through Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. But then there's another way, a final way, in which we see Christ as the Prince of Peace. The coming of Christ at the end of the age will show our Savior to be the Prince of Peace. The hope of the church must not be distracted by millennial thinking away from the one hope the Scripture gives us as the ultimate hope, 
the blessed hope, which is the return of Jesus Christ. And until then, the church will be opposed by the world, and that includes opposition by the false church. In the words of the Belgic Confession, the wicked will most cruelly persecute, oppress, and torment God's people in the world. And that is how it will be until Christ comes again, which makes us long for and expect the coming of Christ with ardent desire. The Heidelberg Catechism asks in question 52, what comfort is it for thee that Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead? The answer is that in all my sorrows and persecutions with uplifted head, I look for the selfsame one who has before offered himself for me to the judgment of God and removed from me all curse to come again as judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall take me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. The blessed hope of the Christian is not a Christianized world before the return of Christ. Rather, it is the bodily return of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And let me stress to us, believer, that what you hope for controls your life. What you long for, what you hope for, what you come to expect to happen controls your life. So I ask you, is the blessed hope the return of Christ when the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, does that control your life? That the one who will come will come, He will return in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel, but to be admired of all of His saints, is that your ultimate hope that fills your heart and fills your life? Then, when he comes, all will know the truth of Luke 1, 32 and 33, which undoubtedly references verse 7. The Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Do you remember earlier in this passage that there was a reference to Gideon in verse 4? And the point was, in large measure, that Gideon's victory over the Midianites was such a victory that he could take no credit for it. My friends, the work on the cross by the Prince of Peace, you can take no credit for that. Your work in conversion, that was all of grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is... It is the work of God. It is His achievement, His accomplishment. It is what He did and does. Not of human works, lest any man should boast. When He comes again, will you be able to take credit for that achievement? Oh no, it's all of grace from first to last. Of His kingdom there shall be no end. And for it we can take no credit. What will, be, what will we be able to do in that day? We can take no credit 
but we can praise him that all the credit is his. Revelation 5, verse 11 and following. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Amen and amen.